My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, September 11th, 2013. Hard to believe, 9-11 was 12 years ago. What happens to the time? But we will not be talking about that today, just to let you know that. for tuning in or listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, on a normal week here at Fighting for the Faith, and this is a normal week, uh, one day a week we do what we call our light episode. It's not that the topic is light, it's just that I usually hand the microphone over to somebody else, not always, but most of the time, and uh, they do an in-depth study on a particular thing. We've been working our way through a series of lectures uh, presented by uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde at uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, as he's been working his way through the Epistle of First John, and this will be the final lecture in the series. This is uh, 11 of 11 lectures, so the the, this is the final installment, and it's it's as fantastic as all the other lectures. And so, without any further ado, we're just going to dive right into it. Here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. All right, well, let's get started. We have uh, a lot of ground to cover today. This is our last day of this class, our last Sunday of this class. Um, so we need to get through chapter 5 today. All right, let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this time of study. We pray that your word would be made clear to our hearts and to our minds, that we might set aside our own reason, our own thoughts, and our own desires, and listen carefully to yours, and then believe them and do them according to your good pleasure, that our sight may be set always on your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, First uh, John chapter 5, let's just pick right up with the text. What we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of repetition, um, a lot of repeated themes that we've, we've seen uh, earlier in the epistle, and we're going to see this focus and this emphasis on belief and love, or faith and love. As important as it is to distinguish between faith and love, it's equally important to hold them together, okay? So, how is it that one is justified before God? By faith and love? Come on, Lutherans. Faith. By faith alone, 
Right, thank you. Faith alone, not faith and love. Okay, so we are justified by faith alone. And yet, is the Christian life faith alone? No, the Christian life is faith and love. Our disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church isn't that the the whole of the Christian life is faith and love. Our disagreement is that when one stands before God, is one justified by faith and love? And the answer there is no, by faith alone. Did I see a hand already? Yes, Art. You're saying that John is not a Lutheran? John is most certainly a Lutheran. Yeah, because he he distinguishes between faith and love, but he holds them together. And that's authentic uh, Lutheranism, which is 2,000 years old. You know, um, John was a Lutheran. So, the... uh, Yeah, I mean, the big errors are folks who say faith and love are together, and therefore they both justify before God. Both your faith and your works is what justifies you before God. Wrong, right? Um, To the man who does not work, Romans chapter 4, 5, God credits his faith as righteousness, right? Faith alone before God. And yet the opposite error then is to say, well, if it's faith alone, then faith alone is all that matters. Never mind love. Forget love. And you actually find an abuse of Lutheranism that sort of teaches that. Oh, all that matters is that you're justified before God by faith, so forget love. And they're absolutely scandalized anytime you talk about love. Well, that's, a, that's an error. Um, Faith and love go together always in the Christian life. And yet we want to distinguish them, particularly when it comes to being justified before God. Well, let's let John do some talking. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So look what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's faith alone. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. See, belief and love, faith and love go hand in hand. Now notice what John does here. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. He really with this destroys the idea that we have a personal, individual relationship with God. Personal, yes. Individual, yes. But only when it's personal along with the other persons in his family. Individual, only when it's with all the other individuals of his family so that we are a collective whole, one body. So to love God, it's not simply Christianity. It's simply a matter of, well, it's just me and God and I'm all right with God, so never mind me and everyone else. Right? As John says, whoever loves the Father, or everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of Him. So the love with the Father, that vertical relationship, is to flow into the horizontal relationship with we have with our neighbors. Okay? Does it always do this perfectly in all of us all the time? No. As John has said earlier, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, so John isn't saying, here's the standard, if you miss it, I guess you're not really a true Christian. That's not what John's saying. John's saying, here's the standard, do we all fall short of it? Yes, but is it nonetheless true? Of course. Alright, so here he puts forth faith and love together. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God, or rather in this we know, if we're going to be a little more accurate, we love the children of God. When we love God, and here's that language again that we've seen earlier uh, in the epistle, if we obey His commandments, the ESV says, um, more a matter of uh, here doing His Word, okay? Doing His instruction. Remember those conversations we had about these, uh, these words before. Verse 3 goes on to clarify, For this is the love of God, that we keep, tereo, that we cherish, guard, uh, love, His commandments, His entolos, His, uh, uh, His instructions. Okay? So, of what does, does loving God consist of? It consists of loving His Word. Because, 
who is God without his word? We don't know. You leave it to the to your imagination, the pagan's imagination, whoever's imagination, who is God? God's an empty canvas that you can paint whatever you want on, right? But God, the one true God, reveals himself through his word. This is who I am. So if you're going to love who God actually is, then you have to love his word. That's John's point. So we love his word and thereby show our love for him. Otherwise, we end up loving a God that we invent, right? Um, we end up loving God not as he is, but as we want him to be. You've heard it said that in the beginning, God made man in his image, and ever since we've been returning the favor. Yeah. Um, that's the problem. And you hear people say this. Well, the Jesus I believe in would never say that, right? Um, and usually it's in direct contradiction to what the Jesus of Scripture actually does say and do. Okay, The Jesus you believe in is a fiction of your mind. Um, the Jesus we believe in is the Jesus expressed in the Word, period. No more, no less, no different. All right. So to love God is to love His Word, to keep, cherish, guard His Word, His instructions, His commandments. And then look at the end of verse 3, and His commandments are not burdensome. So look, John is reminding us here that he is not laying on us the law. He is not laying down the Ten Commandments. He is not, he is not burdening his flock. He's simply saying, look, it's faithfulness in the Word. This is how we love God and then love one another. Faithfulness to the Word. And that's exactly where, remember, what's, what, what has uh, caused John to write this epistle is who knows how many, let's say half his congregation is left following false teachers. They left because the false teachers departed from the Word. What is it that binds the church together? What is it that binds us together who remain? It's the Word of God. To love His instruction is to love Him and to love one another. And this is not burdensome. And we remember, too, that Jesus says, Come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we need to remember that. That as much as we talk about faith and love, that's true, but faith alone justifies. Is that light? It's incredibly light. It's incredibly light. He justifies the ungodly man. He justifies the man who does not work. There's nothing for you to lift. There's nothing for you to do. It's all been done on Good Friday's cross when Jesus shed His blood, when Jesus said into the darkness, it is finished. It's all done. It's incredibly light. So as you think about um, the interrelationship between faith and love, and as you recognize that connection, as you strive toward love, Make sure that you don't get, don't make sure that you're not burdening yourself. Because John isn't burdening yourself and neither is Jesus. His burden is light. And that's the point here. His commandments are not burdensome. It's encouragement. It's to be inspiring. It's to fill you with a sense of uh, a newfound freedom that you never had before. For the first time in your life, you're not compelled to love because you have to, because it's good, because you need to please God so that you get more good stuff, or at least avoid getting cursed by Him. Right? For the first time, all of that's been wiped off the board. He loves you forever and always in Jesus. Now you're free. What would you like to do with your freedom? How about love? So His commandments are not burdensome. Verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. How is one born of God according to this section right here? Believes in Jesus. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So how do you overcome the world? How do you conquer? How are you victorious? What is the victorious Christian life? Believing. It begins and ends right there. So the next time you hear the pastor on the radio say, I'm going to teach you how to be truly victorious today. Are you really living the victorious Christian life? No, no, no. The authentic, truly, really real, victorious life? Uh, you can say, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then you can say, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Yes, by virtue of my faith and my faith alone, I'm living the fullness 
of the victory of Christ, for he has given me the victory. Okay? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's a promise made to you. There's nothing you can do. You've already overcome the world because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Uh, the uh, ESV says kind of anemically, our faith. Okay, well, that's true. What the Greek actually uses is the definite article, which I think is so helpful for us in our postmodern world. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, the faith of us. Now, why am I splitting hairs here? Why am I dabbling with semantics? Because we tend to think of our faith as, well, it's our personal faith. Or it's something inside of it. It's some unique specialness that God says, Whoa, Pastor Rody has faith. I'm pretty impressed by that. Um, guess he's got the victory. Okay, wrong. Um, likewise, we think wrongly when it's like, well, I've got my faith and you've got your faith and um, my faith might be a little different than yours and that's great and wonderful that we each have our own unique faith. Wrong. The definite article is here in the original. The faith. The faith we all share together. The one faith. The faith that has the same content. The faith that all the family of God confesses. The faith that the one body of Christ confesses together. The faith that belongs to all of us. That is what has overcome the world, and that is what the victory consists of, that we hold the faith. And what is the faith? The faith is that which looks to Jesus Christ and says, He and He alone is our salvation. He and He alone is our righteousness. And then verse 5, a rhetorical question. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The answer is no one. Okay, Um, let's go on with verse 6. We're going to try to get through this today. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Uh, Not The preposition changes. I don't know why the ESV doesn't follow it. Um, the preposition changes from by to in. So it goes like this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not in the water only, but in the water and the blood. Okay, let's pause because we don't yet understand this, but it's going to get clear. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Okay, so who is supposed to receive the testimony? Verse 9. If we receive the testimony, that's the point. If we receive the testimony, who is now who is testifying to us? Yeah, he's making he's making a point. He's saying he's saying this. Look, if a man if a man testifies to you, say in a court of law in our system, if a man testifies to you, um, if two or three witnesses confirm the same thing, as Deuteronomy requires, right? Two to three witnesses testify to you. If it's a man, you believe it. How much more if it's God, right? That's his point. Um, But now, what I want you to see is more narrow than that. In verse 9, who is to receive the testimony? We are. Now, who is giving us the testimony? It's not three men, but it's what, according to the preceding verses? Spirit, blood, and water. The Spirit, blood, and water are testifying to you. That's the point. Now, what on earth is this Spirit, blood, and water that testify to you, that say, Jesus is for you. What He did on the cross is yours. How does the Spirit speak to you? Through the Word. Sola Scriptura, right? The Holy Spirit speaks to you through the Word. The Word testifies that what Jesus did on the cross is for you. What else testifies? The water. How on earth does water testify to us? What water? 
Baptism. Baptism testifies and says you have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 2. Okay? In baptism, your sins are forgiven because the forgiveness won on Christ is given to you in baptism. So baptism, the water testifies. Now what's this business about blood? Communion. Communion. Why? Because Jesus takes the cup on the night that He's betrayed and He he, uh, blesses it and He gives it to His disciples saying, drink of it all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That cup testifies to you. It is for you for the forgiveness of your sins. You have three witnesses. The Spirit who speaks to you through the Word, the waters of your holy baptism, and the blood of Christ's cup, all three testify to you. Now, verse the point of verse 9, if you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. And that's what you have in the Word and the water and the blood in the Word and baptism and the Lord's Supper. You have the testimony of God Himself. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. You see, when you believe and you say, well, I wouldn't believe it except the Word says it, and the water says it, and the blood says it, so I guess it's for me, because God doesn't lie, then you have that testimony in yourself, don't you? And then you become a testifier. You become a witness yourself. So you go out into the world bearing witness. Listen, the Spirit bears witness. The water bears witness. The blood bears witness. They bear witness in you, and now you go into the world and bear witness. Continuing on, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, has made him out to be a liar. It's idiomatic, you know. God doesn't lie. That's the point. Um, You know, only the philosopher's God lies. Can God lie? Um, Well, he has to be able to, right? Because otherwise then he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be able to do anything. That's the way philosophy thinks. It's wrong. The scriptures say God cannot lie. If there's one thing God cannot do, he cannot lie. Why? It's against his very essence and nature. Remember, who is the father of lies? Satan. Yeah, God can have nothing to do with a lie. But whoever does not believe the testimony of God, whoever does not believe the testimony of the Spirit and the water and the Word, in effect makes God out to be a liar, at least accuses Him and calls Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. Verse 11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. There's the content. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay? There you get it just as clear as day, the exclusivity. All paths do not lead to God. All paths do not lead to heaven. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. By the way, that's also a present tense. We do not have life unless we have the Son. Pastor Rody, that's idiotic. All those unbelievers running around out there, they have life, they're alive. Ah, no. They have bios, where we take our word biology. They have biological life. They have eat bread and work and sleep and wake up and do the same thing all over. They have bios, that kind of life. But that's no life at all. That's living death. That's just waiting to die. True life is not bios, it's another Greek word, zoe. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he says, I am the, not the bios, I am the zoe. If you have me, you have 
life. You see, so whoever has the Son has Zoe, has life. If you don't have the Son, you, you reject not only the Son, you reject Zoe, and you leave for yourself only bios. And if by reason of, or of strength, your bios is only going to last you 80 years, give or take. Zoe lasts you eternal life. Okay? Uh, lasts you eternity, excuse me. So, verse 13. Uh, let's just keep uh, going along here. Here now, John summarizes really the entire intent and purpose of his epistle. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So at the end of the day, that's John's entire point. So he wants you to know that you have eternal life. And that's a present tense eternal life, as we just mentioned. You have it right now. You're not waiting for eternal life. You're not waiting for the next life. You know, I even find myself saying that kind of thing. It's stupid, though. Um, you have life right now. Uh, as Jesus prays to the Father... Um, on the night before he's betrayed, Monday, Thursday, as we'll celebrate later this week, as he prays to the Father in the earshot of the disciples, he says, and this is eternal life, to know you, as he speaks to the Father, to know you and the one whom you have sent. That puts a whole different perspective on eternal life, doesn't it? When I grew up, I kind of thought that eternal life must be like Disneyland for adults in the sky, right? You know, that, that that's what eternal life is. Jesus kind of corrected me of that. Eternal life is to know the Father and the one whom He has sent. Eternal life is a relationship. And what's so great about that is it doesn't matter if you're here right now or if you die and your body is, is in the earth and your soul is with the Lord in paradise or at the resurrection of the dead when your soul and body are united together and you're in the new heavens and the new earth. Or whatever may come after that, it doesn't matter. No matter in what state you are, in what cosmos you find yourself in, this is eternal life, to know the Father and the One whom He has sent. So you have eternal life no matter what state you're in, because you know the Father revealed to, who has revealed Himself to you in Jesus Christ, revealed His love to you in Christ crucified. Okay, so what does that mean? Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him. The confidence. You know, when Christ comes and, and Christians go, oh my gosh, it's going to be so scary. No, it should be startling, obviously, <laughs> when the world's ending. But once you're over the startling of it, um, it's joyous. It's joyful. There's nothing to fear in the judgment. Perfect love casts out all fear. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. We are to be confident now and on that great day of judgment. And that confidence overflows into our relationship with Him and our prayer life with Him. This is the, this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Now, the beautiful promise of this is that whatever you ask that's in according to His will, He hears you. Okay? So what this means is you can never pray wrong. Because if you pray for something that's not according to His will, that's not going to work out for your best blessing and benefit, do you know what He's going to do? Ignore. And that's answering the prayer, because if you knew what he knew, you would say, oh, Lord, please ignore that. Right? You can never mess up your prayer. That's what this verse is saying. Because if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if for reason of our own foolishness or own nearsightedness as mortal people and sinners at that, we don't ask the right thing, he's not obligated to bind us to that. Okay? You know, in some pagan religions, you have to be really cautious how you prayed because you just might get your prayer answered. You just might not like it. Once you, aren't some fairy tales built around that, you know? Yeah, yeah you, you really want something, and so you, you try to get it. It turns out to be a curse. Um, 
Not so with Jesus. Not so with when we pray, pray to our Father. Um, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So that means that that red Ferrari I've been wanting, you know, must be not according to His will. Must be, uh, you know, um, not good for me overall. Which is probably right. I get speeding tickets. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, and we come back. The balance of today's final lecture on the epistle of First John with Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm 
really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. (laughs) Maybe the world would be better off if they did. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare dentures. (laughs) Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about Think Geek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't engage in in-depth biblical teaching like you're hearing today. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture with Pastor Jeremy Rohde as he finishes up his teaching on the epistle of 1 John. Here we go. And then verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So there's a peace in prayer, you know. It's why when Paul has the thorn in the flesh that he describes, he says, I prayed three times. I don't know if that's ever struck you. Only three times? Wow, you really went for it there. Um, you know, uh, only three times. Why? Because Paul has this confidence that I'm not sure I have. Um, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. Paul says, three times is enough. He knows my request. He knows what I want. If it's good for me, he's going to give it. If not, so be it. Sure enough, God said no to St. Paul's prayer, didn't he? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he said this awesome thing. He said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Whose weakness? Paul's weakness. Sometimes when God tells us no, he's saying to us that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. You go, how can that be? I don't like that. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. It's how God works. It's how God humbles us and goes about his business. You know who else he said no to? His son in the garden. Yeah. You know, when Jesus was uh, praying, let this cup pass from me, um, what is that cup? That cup, the Scripture says, is the cup of God's wrath. When Jesus says, let that cup pass from me, Jesus isn't having a chicken-out moment. Jesus isn't saying, boy, I sure wanted to save the whole world, but you know, now it comes right down to it. I'm not sure I want it. That's not what Jesus is up to. Jesus is saying, let this cup pass from me as He prays intimately to the Father. Why? Because that cup is God's wrath, is the Father's wrath. Jesus is saying, what I don't want to do is be at odds with you, Father. What I don't want to do is have your wrath when I've known from eternity only your love and you've known my love. I don't want your wrath. You see, that's not a chickening out or a copping out. That's an expression of real, raw emotion that we can't begin to comprehend between a father and a son from eternity. He's not chickening out. And he's especially not chickening out because after that's over, he says, but not my will, but your will be done, which is simply his assent that I will endure your wrath even though I don't want to, even though I've never experienced your wrath in all eternity, I will do it for the sake of those whom I love. And that's Good Friday. Okay, so uh, on to verse 16 and um, drawing ever closer to the close of John's epistle. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Okay, here's your proof text for making yourself the moral nanny and uh, sin investigator of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, so everyone, right? Forget and ignore the log in your own eye and go look for those specks in your brother's eye. That's the point of this verse, right? No. No. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, what does this mean? If as you're, as you're forgiving and you're bearing one another's burdens and you're living harmoniously in the body of Christ and you see a sin that someone commits, okay, and maybe it's against you, maybe it's against another, maybe it's against themselves, um, you know, in, in certain circumstances we have Jesus' command to go and speak to that person. Here John says, a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life. So the person who's sinning, the brother or sister who's sinning in Christ, um, what's maybe even the very first thing we ought to do? Pray. Pray. Ask God that God will forgive them and give them life. And He will. That's the promise. 
um, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. What are sins that that uh, don't lead to death? Isn't aren't all sins deadly? Yeah, that's true. All sins can be deadly. Um, but a sin that leads to death is a sin that's... Well, we'll describe a sin that leads to death thoroughly in just a minute. But for right now, let's just superficially say it's a sin that someone is unrepentant over and that someone clings to, and that sin is ultimately going to drag them away from Jesus. Okay, That's an oversimplification, but let's let that sit for a second. What is a sin not leading to death? A sin not leading to death is the kind of sins that we fall into all the time. Every day, who knows how many hundreds of times a day, right? Why do they not lead us into death? Because they're not leading us away from the one who is life. In fact, in some respects, our sin, if you've ever noticed, or at least the accusation against our sin, is the very thing that drives us to Christ. You know, the sin is a, itself is a step away from Him, and then comes Satan and says, oh, look what you've done. Then comes your conscience, right? Don't you love that? Uh, your old Adam... He, uh, he, he entices you to sin, right? It's all just, oh, go for it. Go for it. You'll get away with it just this once. So you, okay. And you do it. And then what's that sucker do right after that? Shame on you. Right? Where was your shame on you a second ago? You know, have you ever had that where you're like, conscience, where were you two minutes ago when I needed you? You should have been telling me then, not now. Right? Um, you see, so these accusations, be it from our conscience or from Satan, how do we deal with that? Luther's got this wonderful line. I'm just going to paraphrase it. But he says, when the devil comes and waves my sin in my face, I say, thank you, devil. I know I'm a sinner. By the way, do you have any others that you haven't gotten recounted for me yet? And he'll pause a second to wait. Okay, well, since you don't have any others, I readily admit that I'm a sinner. And thank you so much for pointing me to the one who became sin for me on the cross, to the one who dies for sinners, because he himself says that he comes not for the righteous, but for the sick, not for the well, but for the sick, not for the righteous, but for sinners. That's who Christ comes for. So you have accused me of sin and you have pointed to me that I am a sinner. Thank you. Now I know all the more that Jesus is for me. And that's how we ought to deal with these sins that are not leading to death. Okay. Now, here's a verse that, uh, or a part of this verse then that, you know, troubles a lot of people, and I think needlessly, because we just have to understand what John is after. Um, I'll just go through verse 16 again so we get there. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. And we would also say there is sin that does lead to death. Okay, so in John's context, what is the sin that is leading to death? Unbelief. And specifically a rejection of, of Jesus, that Jesus is truly God's Son come in the flesh, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Savior. Um, and who are these people who are rejecting? Are they unbelievers just Right off the bat, unbelievers? No. They're where? Inside John's church. You see, these are people in John's context who are Christian people, who know the gospel inside and out. Some of these people are teachers. They know the gospel inside and out. They know Jesus. They know the truth. They're thoroughly indoctrinated. They believe. And then they follow after lies. They don't love His Word, they reject His Word. They don't love His Son, they reject His Son. They don't love the brothers and sisters in Christ, they reject them and leave and start their own thing. Now, how do you pray for someone in that circumstance? Dear Heavenly Father, please help this false teacher who knows your gospel inside out as well as I do, but hates it and rejects it. Help him how? If you go and preach the gospel again to such a person, that person says, been there, done that, know it inside out, want nothing to do with it. We ought not pray for such a person. That sin is leading to death. Can God still save that person and turn that person around? Yeah, He can. It's very much akin now to, uh, if we broaden this out away from John's uh, 
own unique context and exactly what he's talking to. And we kind of broaden this out. Uh, if we remember the man in 1 Corinthians who is uh, engaged in some really heinous sexual activity and the Corinthian congregation is all patting itself on the back because we're so merciful and we're so great that this guy can stay in the church and he can keep communing with us and everything's wonderful and we'll just wink, wink, nod, nod. We're forgiving like God isn't this great. And Paul says, no, it's not great. That man, his sin is leading him into death. He's in impenitence. And what what Paul says is scandalous to our overly gentle 21st century ears. Paul says, hand that man over to Satan. What he means is, turn him over and excommunicate him. Why? So that he may be taught not to blaspheme. Because Satan has a way of teaching people that they made a mistake. That they need to repent. What they really need is to return to Christ and be forgiven. That man, by the way, in 2 Corinthians, it works. Satan drives that man right back into the church. And that man then, the Corinthians are going, "Uh oh, well, should we bring him back and forgive him? And Paul says, of course. What are you waiting for? That's a paraphrase. Okay, but um, but you you see the point. So God can turn people away, uh, back, you know, even if they're in a sin leading to death. He can turn a false teacher. That's true. But as far as how we might pray for a false teacher who falls from Christ, uh, you know, Christianity, genuine, true Christianity. I'm not talking about a false teacher who never knew the gospel in the first place and walked away from Christianity, like most of them. I'm talking about the ones who really know it and walk away from it and reject it, how would you even pray for such a person? And that's John's point. Um, he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. It's hard to. You know, it's like the picture, again, broadening it out of John's context, it's like the picture in Hebrews 6, where if you're praying, what are you praying for? It's like this. Here's the analogy in Hebrews. It's like the gospel is a rain that falls on the ground. And in Christians, that it produces good crops, Right? But in an apostate, in someone who's rejected the gospel, when that rain comes, when the gospel comes into that person's ears, what happens? They bristle, and all of a sudden they're filled with thorns. When that rain comes, the ground just becomes more thorny, more antagonistic. Um, Only God can help that. And how on earth do you even begin to pray for someone when they're in that situation? Lord, please send more of your rain. Why? So that more thorns will grow? And that's John's point, that we just can't pray for people who are on that path, though that doesn't necessarily mean that they're eternally condemned. Certainly they are if they don't repent. But the sin that leads to death is avoidable. It's avoidable. I mean, it's not like they're predetermined to go to death. Um, All they need to do is repent, hear God's law, repent, hear His gospel, and believe it once again. And we have, you know, we have some hope of people who fall away and reject Jesus of coming back, not least of which who? Well, Paul never really like had Jesus and walked away, but the next, the other P, Peter. Yeah. Remember Peter? Like, I'll go with you to the death, Peter. Like, I'll fight for you. I'll die for you, Peter. Um, who whips out his sword and lops off the guy's ear as Jesus is standing right there. Kind of an incredible picture. And yet, at that end of that night, before the rooster crows three times, Peter's done what? Denied him. Yeah, denied Jesus, rejected Jesus. Peter's restored, isn't he? Yeah. Peter becomes, uh, of, of the two apostates of that, of, 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 uh, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and the following days, the two apostates are Peter and Judas. Judas is the type of, of the apostate who falls into despair, who will not believe that he is forgiven, who will not come back. And remember, he goes and he even tries to remedy. He throws the silver back in the false teacher's face, right? And if they were true teachers, they would have said, oh my gosh, you're, you're destroyed over this. We want to forgive you and uh, bring reconciliation and peace to you. Well, they say no such thing. They send him off and he falls into despair. What I've done is so terrible and there's no forgiveness, and there's no reconciliation, and he ends up hanging himself. Now, Peter is the antitype. He, too, apostatizes that night. He, too, rejects Jesus, no less than, than Judas does. But Peter is reconciled to Jesus. Um, Peter is willing to repent. 
Remember at the end of John, that's depicted for us where Jesus comes and asks Peter. Peter's denied Jesus how many times? Three times. And so Jesus comes and asks him, uh, do you love me? How many times? Three times. Restoration. So can a man who rejects Jesus uh, be reestablished by Jesus, be brought back in and forgiven by Jesus? Of course. Of course. Okay. Um, Verse 18, it takes us back to chapter 3, reminiscent of chapter 3. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And again, that, that English language translation just doesn't do it justice. Um, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not establish sin as a pattern of his life, does not embrace sin as a wonderful thing consistent with his relationship with Jesus. Okay? And that goes back to to chapter 3, if you want the full explanation of that. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, we need some help with the pronouns. We know that everyone who has been born of God, that's us, right, does not keep on sinning. What's supposed to be our relationship to sin? God's in the business of forgiving. That's great because I'm in the business of sinning. That's great. So I'll sin more so that grace can abound more. Genuine Christianity? No. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. Jesus says uh, to multiple people after he's healed them or forgiven them, what does he say? Go and sin no more. Is Jesus so naive as to think that they're actually going to do that? No. Is Jesus laying an impossible law on them? No. Jesus is showing them what the proper attitude towards sin is. Look, if there's no sin in Jesus, and if Jesus came to take away sin and destroy sin and put away sin, what is our attitude towards sin? As much as is possible, we want nothing to do with it. Does that mean we're going to go on, that we're going to uh, stop sinning entirely? Well, John's already answered that question. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Right? Okay. Now, this latter half, but he who is born of God, and this he is now singular. Who is the monogenes, the only born, the only begotten of God? Jesus. There's the he. So if, you're, if your scriptures have it in undercase, it should be uppercase, he. But he who is born of God, that is Jesus, protects him. Protects who? Protects you. Jesus, who is born of God, protects you, and the evil one does not touch you. Why would the evil one be able to touch you? Well, because you're a sinner, and he makes his claim on sinners. Sinners belong to me. They listen to me, not God. But he who is born of God, Jesus, protects you. His blood protects you. Um, in Revelation chapter 12, uh, we are told that it is that we overcome the evil one. We overcome Satan by the blood of Jesus and by the word of his testimony. So Jesus stands between us and the wicked one. Jesus stands between us and the accuser. And here we have, uh, you know, really just this beautiful, beautiful gospel picture of Satan reaching up to grab you and Jesus standing in the way and saying, this one's mine. My blood covers all his sins, all her sins. This one's mine. And the devil, one, the evil one does not touch him. Okay, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's white and black. It's not postmodern. It's not gray or shades of gray. It's we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. Who's this Him? Jesus. I am the way and the truth. So that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ in the Son, and thereby in the Father and Spirit as well. He is the true God and eternal life. You see, God Himself is eternal life. That's what Jesus is after with His prayer. To know God is to have eternal life. Jesus, God, this is eternal life. This is paradise. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Now this last line just brings it all the way home. What is it that those who have departed from John's church who have left, what is it that they have really done? Put their faith in other things, in idols. Idols. In this case, not uh, idols that their hands have made, but in this case, idols that their minds have made. A God who's like this, just how I want Him to be. A Jesus who's like that, just how I think He should work. That's the idol. So, John says to his congregation, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because you have the one true God. And because the one true God is eternal life. That brings us through John's epistle, a beautiful epistle, a pastoral epistle, not without its challenges to us, and those challenges are good, and not without its its wonderful focus. Again, let me take you back just one last time to John chapter 2, where we have, I think, really the whole expression of this, of this epistle, and frankly, the whole expression of the entire New Testament right here for us in two verses. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation. He is the blood poured on the mercy seat. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Are there any questions or comments before we close for today? Art? We're in Holy Week uh, coming up, and we understand that Jesus died on the cross carrying the sins of the world. And it seems to me that there was some question about when he was baptized, is that when the sins of the world came upon him? Yeah, that's partially what's going on there. Um, you know, as Jesus, as Jesus is on the banks of the Jordan um, and he's looking down, who's in those waters being baptized exclusively? Sinners. Yeah, uh, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what's being washed away? Sins. So what are those, theologically speaking, what are those waters full of? Sin. Now Jesus comes down to John and says, uh, let me be baptized. And John says, oh, okay, great. No, John says, what? It is I who should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, permit it to be so, Why? For the fulfilling of all righteousness. See, Jesus is sitting there going, gosh, I'm 99% righteous, and if I'm just baptized, I'll have all the righteousness. Wrong. Jesus is fully righteous. So what does He mean for the fulfilling of all righteousness? Who needs to be filled with righteousness? Sinners. He wants to be baptized so that we sinners might be righteous. Baptized where? In those waters that are full of sin. He wants to be baptized so that we have His righteousness and so that He has our sin. And then He takes that sin to the cross, which is why later when He's... uh, in a, little, in a little talk he gives to his uh, disciples, he describes his cross as baptism. Remember that? Uh, the mother of the two say, can they sit at your right and your left? And Jesus says, are they able to be baptized with the baptism that I am going to be baptized with? And he's talking about his cross. Later on, he says the same, I mean, just subsequently next, I mean, he says, um, are they able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And the point is, no, not really. Um, and yet Jesus says they will. How? Because the baptism of the, on the cross is going to transform their baptism. It's not going to be a baptism of their death. It's going to be a baptism into his death and also his resurrection, Paul says in Romans 6. And then likewise, the cup, they're not going to partake of the cup of wrath like Jesus has to, but they're still going to partake of the cup the cup that he turns and says, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. 
And what's in that cup? The blood, the same blood that He'll shed for us on the cross, that He sheds for us on the cross. So look, baptism and communion find their meaning and connection in the cross. And by the way, the cross wouldn't make a heck of a lot of sense without baptism and communion. Okay, did I see another? Yes, Bob. Yeah, can we go back to the comments you were making back in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, when Jesus was praying that the cup pass be this cup be passed? Uh, is it fair to to say that this is an exclusionary statement because to all other religions, all the other world religions, because not only was God saying to Christ, no, this is the only way that you can atone for the sins of the world, and this is what we need to do. But if, in other words, if if there was another way, then all the world religions would have access to that forgiveness. Does that make sense to you? Is that a reasonable question? Well, I'm kind of following. Okay. Um, I, I, it's not exactly where I would go to try to demonstrate that the cross is the only way. Um, furthermore, I don't really believe this verse just screws us up. It's hard to understand. And sometimes we put forward answers that are not the best. And I don't really believe it's a, it's right to think that Jesus is asking, gosh, is there any other way than the cross? Because the whole time he's been telling his disciples, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to, I'm going to be, the son of man will be given into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed and on the third day he'll rise again. Um, the whole time, remember he says this and, and Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And he says, what? Get behind me, Satan. So now is Jesus going to question the, stand in the position of Satan himself and question the cross? No, see that? I don't think that way makes any sense, even though some folks say it that way. Um, I think what Jesus isn't saying, get me out of the cross or is there any other way? What Jesus is expressing is he doesn't want to drink the cup, which is the wrath of the Father, which from eternity, I mean, we can't even begin to comprehend the intimate relationship between Father and Son from eternity. And that's about to be breached. The Son is about to experience the Father's wrath that he's never experienced before. He's telling his dad, I don't want to, I don't want your wrath. I love you but not my will, your will be done. And then on the cross, too, in faith, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's faith. So I think that what he's expressing in that moment is not an expression either. Sometimes people say, well, it's just his human nature speaking. No, nonsense. That's Nestorian. That's heretical. It is his whole person speaking to the Father, and he's saying, I don't want to be at odds with you. My whole being is one with you. And yet, not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's so he, uh, you know, in idiomatic language elsewhere, that's what it means that he learns obedience, even obedience to death, even a death as shameful as that on the cross. That he so loves the Father that he'll suffer even the Father's rejection in order to please the Father. Which is mind-blowing to us. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks, Bob. That's it? Okay, I've got to get to church and so do you. The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>